doing well? I'll tell you, I'll just confess to you, okay? I got up early this morning, um, and for some reason, I just picked up this book that I bought a while ago called A Hole in Our Gospel, and I couldn't put it down. I couldn't put it down. I, I, I literally skimmed through the whole thing, and I'm not in this, like, guilt trip, and I'm not trying to guilt you, um, but there's a part of me that as, as a pastor at a church right now, I just feel like a loser. And it's okay. God's just working on my heart right now uh, because I'm also just as excited. I feel like he has more for our church. He still has more as it pertains to what he wants us to do for his kingdom. So if that bores you, just be bored. If that stirs a little bit, you could just say amen right now. Okay. Um, by the way, Charity Tages, there's going to be a golf outing for her. Uh, not this Saturday, but next Saturday. I believe that's June 12. If you'd like to get a foursome, it's $1,000 per foursome or $250 per person in the foursome. Uh, I want to make you aware of that. Second thing before we dive into uh, the Word of God this morning is... Um, this 24-7, 40 days of prayer, okay, you're probably already not going to find that many spots to sign up, okay? But I want to just tell you that last week, Sunday, Crossroads Bible Church completed seven years. We're done with seven years. And uh, it's only by the grace of God. And I would say one of the main things that God pressed deep in our hearts is that prayer is not a part of the ministry of Crossroads. Prayer is the ministry. It's the ministry. And God has been teaching our church how to pray. And these 40 days now that we are going to be stepping into have a specific theme. (coughs) Jubilee. And I'll give you some texts right now that you can start just wetting your hearts with that kind of flush this theme out a little bit more. The first is uh, Deuteronomy 15, where it says, at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. There you go. Then read Deuteronomy 15 and hear what God has to say and instruct his people. Uh, Another text, a Jubilee text, is Leviticus 25. And then these texts then are kind of on the prophet Isaiah's mind in Isaiah 61. And Isaiah 61 is what I'm going to preach through the whole summer. I'm just going to take that thing almost verse by verse, Sunday by Sunday, because it says, in the year of the Lord's favor, in the year of Jubilee. Okay, and then, of course, Isaiah 61 became whose mission statement? Jesus. Okay, and I believe that as we push into prayer, that, and as we push into God's word this summer, that God's going to push some things into our heart that are going to be significant in terms of who we are and what God has called us to be. So that's the summer. By the way, also, Shabbat Shalom. 
you know, get some Sabbath rest this summer as well, okay? I mean, enjoy the summer if we get any (laughs) and all of that. But at the same time, something intense, I think, is going to happen here uh, at our church as well. Okay, now, before I step into God's Word, I'm going to tell you what happened to me last week. I was speaking at the B-Shop, Ryan Walkus's uh, thing downtown, and he has this Saturday night group. It's mainly high school and college students. He's been doing this for years. It was my first time teaching there. They gather for three hours, by the way. <laughs> they just, they sing their guts out. Um, I, I stepped up to, to teach, and I'm reading the Bible, and I'm not kidding you. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm reading the Bible, and I'm hearing out there, mm, yes, oh. It's like they were eating a feast. And then they worshiped for a whole other hour. It was, it was an awesome thing to be a part of. Um, then I got home. It's a little after 10. Print my sermon out. My hard drive completely crashed. I didn't have a sermon. Nothing. I went into full panic mode. I will not describe what that looked like. <laughs> and then Gabe kind of woke me up out of my slumber and just said, you know, Dad, maybe God didn't want you to preach that sermon. So... I'm like, I don't have a sermon except for the one I just preached tonight. And that's what I preached. And then, I guess, word got out here that people here wanted to hear uh, this sermon as well. So, sorry. Psalm 42. Let's go there right now. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. This is Psalm 42 and 43. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food both day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? But these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. But my soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan and the heights of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. And I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Vindicate me, my God. Plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You are God, my stronghold. 
Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. This is God's word. You can be seated. If you're wondering why it's two psalms today, it's because in the Hebrew Bible, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 are just one psalm. And I think when you read them together, you can see the consistency and the continuity that are there. Now, the first thing I want to look at is who wrote this psalm. And from the text, this is what we know about the author of this psalm. We know this, first of all, from verse 4, that in the past he went to the house of God in Jerusalem. And then when you look at verse 2, for some reason, he cannot go there now. When can I go and meet with God? And then in verse 5, you see his hope. That one day, he would go back to it. And then at verse 6, you kind of get a sense as to where he is. He's north of Jerusalem at the tippermost part of Israel, Mount Hermon, which is about 120 miles away. And then when you kind of deduct from various verses, Psalm 43, verse 1 and 2, what you know is that the psalmist has enemies who have pushed him far away from his home. Now, when I consider all those things, this has David's heart written all over it. And so, I try to piece this into David's life. Like, when would David be writing this psalm? And Well, he's running for his life. He's being chased from his home. He has enemies who are trying to oppress him and kill him. His life has fallen apart. He's lost everything that he knows. And see, I look at David's life and I see that that happened two times in his life. First, it happened in his younger years when King Saul, of course, was trying to kill David. He was jealous of him. David loses everything and for years lives in the desert hiding from Saul. But that's not the only time that that happens in David's life. It happens at the end of his life when another king is trying to kill him. This king is his son Absalom. And as a result, Absalom takes the throne drives David out, David loses everything of earthly value to him. But on top of that, think about this, his very own son, his son is trying to kill him. And so this is where I picture David writing this song. 
And it's one thing, I think, to lose everything when you're young. That's significant. But you still think, like, well, I have a lifetime to kind of get it all back. It's another thing to be at the end of your life and then lose it all. And that's David. And the way that he kind of describes his state, he uses this picture of a deer, a panting deer. And deers don't pant. They don't make these loud panting noises unless they're literally dying of thirst. And so here is David saying through this image of the deer, I'm a man who's dying of thirst. And what David does in this psalm, as he does in all the psalms, is he holds absolutely nothing back to describe his state. In fact, I think he puts it in ways that make some of us uncomfortable today. Verse 3, he says, My tears, my tears have been my food both day and night. He says, I'm not eating, I'm not sleeping, I'm in utter torment. In verse 6, he says, my soul is downcast within me. This word downcast can be translated better, despair, even better yet, depression. And what David is saying is, I am experiencing deep, deep depression. And then you get down to verse 9, and he says, I say to God, you're my rock. God, my rock, why have you forsaken me? And so it feels to David... That God has abandoned him. What he's experiencing in his life at this time is this spiritual drought. Where God feels like he's a million miles away. It's not that David's abandoned belief in God. But for some reason, David's not feeling God. There's no more taste of God. There's no more sight of God. There's no more this experience of God. Now, I don't know where you put this. I don't know what bucket you put this in. But I'll tell you what, I th- what bucket I think we put it in. When we hear people or see people who are in this situation, we instinctively conclude there's something wrong there. There's something wrong with this. We put the wrong label on this. Or if this is you today, we label it wrong. What's wrong with me? Why am I crying all the time? Why am I depressed? Why does it feel like God is so far 
from me. Now, I don't know about you, but I'll be real honest this morning. My heart can pray this prayer. I can pray it. I know tears. I know depression. I know what it's like to just have, have, have long seasons of, of, of melancholy. Um, I know what it's like to be in the fetal position. I, I, know what it like, I know what it's like to just sense, like, where are you, God? God, are you, are you here? I don't sense you. I can't see you. I can't taste you. And see, I'll tell you what, I, the older I get, I used to just uh, hit the panic button when I'd find myself in these states. But the older I get, the more I realize, you know what, I'm not alone in this. Are you kidding me? I'm comforted by someone like David who was there. Elijah was there. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, was there. Moses was there. Then you go through church history and you have people like Martin Luther where... He describes this thing called infectung, this German word for, for the dark night of the soul that he often experienced. Dietrich Bonhoeffer experienced it. The Desert Fathers experienced this thing that they call the dark night of the soul. And so we need to just try not to be so American in our response to Things like tears and melancholy and even feeling depression and and sensing that God is a long way away by just automatically concluding that that that's wrong or there's something wrong with that person or there's something wrong with me if I am that person. And see, some of you are here today. Your life is in the spiritual pit and you're feeling this profound spiritual dryness. It feels like... God has abandoned you. It feels like God is a million miles away. Where are you, God? Now listen. Do you know that having this feeling of God's absence can actually be proof of God's presence? See, so many of us, we just kind of freak out, we go into panic mode, when we can't feel God. Because remember those times, maybe when we first came to Christ, or those seasons in life where, where we could just sense Him and His presence, and we ate of Him, we drank of Him, and, and it was such delight. And, and then I think about our, the day in which we live today where... We base our whole life on, on a feeling. And so therefore we base our walk with God on a feeling. And so we then conclude that if I don't feel God, if I don't sense God, then God must be absent. I want to just, I want to punch that right now. Because <laughs> feelings can and will accompany our faith. But our faith is not based on feeling. 
And here's what I'm learning more and more the older I get, that, that God actually does have a love language. I don't know if you do some of his love language stuff, but I've, I've done that in my own marriage where I found out what my love languages are, and Libby finds out what her love languages are. And I'm even doing it with my kids now. In fact, the other day, I just said to Gabe, I said, Gabe, I know what your love language is. He said, what? I said, Gabe, you are the absolute best. You are so incredible. He couldn't wipe the smile off his face. I said, there's your love language. It's words of encouragement. See, God has a love language. It's not the feeling we give to him. His love language is obedience. It's obedience. If you love me, you're going to obey me. And see, what David is feeling here, he's feeling it at the core of his being, is homesickness. I mean, look at verse 4. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God. And then look at verse 6. He says, therefore, I will remember you from where I am right now. David is away from home. And it's more than just his throne, it's more than his palace, it's, it's, it's more than his family, his friends that he misses. David is homesick for God. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul, it pants for you. I miss you. I long for you. And I'll tell you the people that I'd be concerned about this morning. It's not the people who right now feel like God has abandoned them, nor is it those who, who don't feel God right now in their life. The people I'd be most concerned about this morning are the people who never miss him. Do you ever miss him? See, the deal is, if you're indifferent to God's absence, where you never miss him, then you're probably indifferent to his presence. And see, only people who have tasted God and experienced God's abiding presence in their life can pray this kind of prayer. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. And I'll tell you why people like David get to places why they miss God. It's because the relationship with God is not defined by words like duty and obligation. But the relationship with God is defined by words like delight and pleasure and satisfaction and treasuring and things like that. Because if God is just an obligation to you, if God is just a duty, I'm going to tell you right now, you will never miss him. All right, what I want to do for the remainder of this time now is give you eight applications. <laughs> You're like, what? I never do that, okay? I always give you one or two because I don't want this to be all about us. But there's a time when you just got to apply the word of God. And if you are in this place today where you sense God is away from you, or you're in a place of despair or melancholy, i got eight things for you. Number one, 
pour out your soul. In fact, we see this in verse 4 where David says, these things are remember as I pour out my soul. See, that's what you get from David. That's what you get from the Psalms. There's no pretense. There's none of this kind of hyper-spirituality. There's nothing phony at all about David. In fact, if you're in this place, read the Psalms because the Psalms will teach you how to pour out your soul. Because I think a lot of us have been taught most of our life that what we need to do with all this stuff is just kind of bottle it up. Or just buck up. But what David does and what the Psalms and the rest of the Bible teach us is no. What we are to do is just literally cut open our heart and pour it all out. Pour it out. When you get pricked, let it flow. Don't stuff it down. My brother was uh, just telling me last week, and this is in light of just where I've been in the last six weeks. We were just talking about just dealing with loss, and, and he was describing um, a good friend of his who I think it was about two years ago. Tragically, he lost his 15-year-old daughter to a car accident. My brother was on his way, vacation. I believe he was either in Pennsylvania or Ohio when he got the phone call. And he just immediately turned around and came home. And he and, and, and my brother-in-law, Kevin, who's, who's right back there right now, they spent a long time, a lot of time walking alongside of this, this dad. And my brother described it as a guy who he held back nothing. I mean, my brother, when he first saw him, he literally just collapsed. And he wept. And he shook. And he said, really, Rod, that was what the way it was for the first week or more every time I saw him. And he said there was this one time in particular where he felt so like God had abandoned him. And he, he just... He poured it out. He, he, he cried it out. And he just said, right now, I just, I need to know, God, that you are real. That's all I need to know. And he said he got up, went outside, fell on the ground. And my brother says, I kid you not, the moment he got on the ground, it started to rain. And then it poured took his shirt off and God just rained living water on him. And I tell you all this to say he taught my brother how to pour out one soul. Pour it out. Number two. Take care of your body. I know this sounds like almost insignificant, but it's not. It's, it's, it's really significant, actually. I mean, David says, my, my food, my food has been my tears both day and night. And so what David is really saying here is, I'm not eating well, I'm not sleeping. 
And I think one of the things that we forget sometimes is that we are embodied human beings. That how we eat, how much sleep we get, strongly affects our emotions, it affects our outlook, it affects our relationships with other people, it even affects our relationship with God. And it took me a long time in my life to really be respectful of this. And I remember finally when I was at a church and I was working hard hours, one of the pastors finally just looked at me and said, Rod, would you determine how much sleep you need to get every night and get it? That thought never crossed my mind. And I'm telling you, how much sleep we get, how we eat, our diet, our exercise, all these things affect us significantly. And so, in light of what the Bible teaches over and over again, that our bodies are a spiritual house, they're a temple to the living God, that how we treat our bodies not only affects our relationship with the living God, it affects our emotions, our outlooks, and all of that. Number three, spend time, lots of time, with God-filled, God-saturated people. I mean, when you look at verse 42, or chapter 42, verse 10, where David says, My bones suffer mortal agony. My foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, Where is your God? I mean, they're just taunting him. And then you see it again in verse 2 of chapter 43, where it says, why must I go about mourning, oppressed by my enemy? See, what David has come to in his life is this place, not only where he's away from home and lost everything, but he's just surrounded with people who are anti-David and anti-God. And that's what he's got to listen to all day as they taunt him. And see, I say this to my kids all the time. Your friends are hugely important in your life. Who you hang out with, they're either going to build you up or they're going to tear you down. And we all know how important that is for our kids. But for some reason, we get older and now we think it doesn't matter. But it does matter. It matters who you're with the kind of people that you surround yourself with. Now, you know the vision and mission of this church. We are going to incarnate ourselves. We're going to move into the hardest places. But we don't do it alone. And I just feel like God has just given me, it's almost an embarrassment of riches, starting with my wife, my parents, my sister, my brother, my friends, this church. I need you guys. What Matt Westerholm talked about two weeks ago is significant. The body of Jesus Christ sometimes can be the worst at encouraging each other. But as we get good at, at, at encouraging each other in a biblical way and building each other up, and edifying each other. I'm telling you, you're going to see lambs become lions. It matters. 
who you spend time with. Number four, take an inventory of your hopes. I mean, three times David asks this question. He asks it, I believe, in, um, well, two times in chapter 42, and then in the last verse of 43. He says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Put your hope in God. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Put your hope in God. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Put your hope in God. See, what David realizes is that there is a connection between why his soul soul is downcast and what he's placing his hope in. What are you placing your hope in? See, because sometimes the reason why we are downcast or melancholy or depressed or it feels like God is a long way from us is because we've put our hope in the wrong thing. This is huge. Because I am looking at a bunch of Americans and we've been taught to put our hope in houses and cars and neighborhoods and money and entertainment and boyfriends and girlfriends and all these things. And then we're wondering, why are we so downcast? These things aren't going to deliver. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And so what David has done is, yes, he's recognizing the spiritual dryness in his life. And then he's remedying with that by saying, soul, stop hoping in that. Stop hoping in that. Soul, put your hope in the only hopeful thing there is. God, hope in him. You know, David writes another psalm when Absalom chases him away. It's Psalm 3. And in Psalm 3, he does say something that I find very interesting. He says, You're a shield about me. You're my glory and the lifter of my head. And see, what David has really lost in his life is all his glory. Maybe the glory that he was placing in his family. Maybe the glory that he was placing in his sons. Maybe the glory that he was placing in his palace. Maybe the glory he was placing in being king of Israel. And now all of a sudden he's lost all of that. And now he's come to this place where he says, You're my glory. And as God is our glory, our head goes up. Number five, stop listening to yourself and start preaching to yourself. (laughs) He says, soul, why are you downcast? Soul, put your hope in God. You see what he's doing? He's talking to himself. He's 
He's preaching to his own soul. See, now there's something that I do a lot of, and I don't know if you do a lot of this, but I do listen to myself a lot. I not only listen to myself, but I listen to other people. And sometimes I find that what I say about myself or think about myself or what other people say about me or think about me can be one of the first things that leads me to a place of depression. (laughs) I'm hard on myself. I am really good at beating myself up. It's like I have this voice inside of me and it speaks. Like, Rod, why'd you blow it here? And Rod, you can be better at this. And Rod, you should be doing more here. And then other people throw a little gasoline on that little spark. And, you know, all of a sudden it's just boom, 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 boom. And we just find ourselves listening to ourselves, listening to ourselves, listening to ourselves, listening to ourselves. You know what David's doing? He's saying, stop. Soul, I'm going to preach to you right now. Why are you downcast? Soul, put your hope in him. I don't know about you. I've got to preach the gospel to myself every single day. Because if my soul doesn't hear the gospel every single day... I go to one of two ugly places. I either think I'm the biggest loser in the world or my head gets this big. And so I preach gospel to my own soul every single day because what gospel tells me is that, Rod, You think you're such a big deal? You are such a sinner that the God of the universe literally had to become flesh, hang on a cross, and die for you. That's how bad and miserable you are. Or, Rod, you think you're such a loser. There's no condemnation for you, Rod. And, Rod, he has adopted you into his family. And he's the heavenly father who delights in you, whose spirit testifies with your spirit. I love you, Rod. There's no one like you. And see, when I preach that to myself, then all of a sudden, my voice, or even your voice, becomes real small. Stop listening to yourself. Start preaching to yourself. Number six. Stop looking at the waves. Boy, we're so good at looking at what's wrong and and, and looking at all the negative things around us. We're good at looking at the waves. And I think it's um, verse 7 of chapter 42 where David says, Deep calls to deep. And in the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. And when David's in that one verse, that deep calls to deep and the waves and the breakers that are sweeping over him, I think that this is the most telling picture that describes David and his reality. What David is saying in this verse is, look, 
I am a man who's drowning. Now, I'm not going to ask you right now to raise your hands, okay? Because I know you. I know that you're not going to raise your hand. But I'm going to tell you, verse 7 is everyone's reality at least some point in life where it feels like I'm drowning. And the waves are just coming over and they're sweeping over me and they're breaking and they're crushing me. That's David's reality. Now, this word deep in the Hebrew, it's the word to home. In the Greek, it's the word abyss. In fact, the tohom is one of the first things mentioned in the Bible. It's mentioned in Genesis 1, verse 2. It's, it's the deep. It's that watery chaos. And see, here's the biblical worldview. This might not be your worldview, but this is the w- biblical worldview. The deep or the abyss is the home to the dragon, to the Leviathan, to Satan, to his demons. It's all those spiritual forces that just wreak chaos and havoc upon our world. And in the Bible's worldview, or the way of picturing it, the deep is where they live. That's why when Jesus casts out the legion of demons in Luke's gospel, it didn't say, and they went into the sea, but it says they went into the abyss. And that's why one of God's first act of creation is he subdues it. He subdues the deep. He puts it in its place. And so the deep then becomes more than just the physical sea, but the deep or the tahom or the abyss is used to symbolize the chaos of life, the forces of evil. All those things that can overwhelm a person. That's why David says what he says in Psalm 69. He says, save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I've sunk in the deep, in the tahom, and therefore there is no foothold there. I've come into the deep waters, into the tahom, and the flood overflows me. I'm weary from my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail. While I wait for you, God. Now, the Bible also teaches what is it that brings about the to home. Well, sometimes it's just our sinful choices. Sinful choices will always bring about to home. Sometimes it's the fact that we just live in a fallen world and, and the, there are circumstances, there are waves, there are breakers that just crash over our life. And sometimes, the Bible speaks very clearly of this, it's Satan and his whole cohort of of demons that are, I'll tell you what they're doing, they hate the image of God that's in you. They hate it, and they're going to destroy it. Now, some of you right now are like, I'm scared. I'm scared of that. Why? Why? I mean, think about that story in the gospel where Jesus is walking on on water and he just kind of passes the disciples in the boat and says, hey guys, what's up? 
And uh, <laughs> I don't know, that, that's kind of, I think, supposed to be a humorous part in the Bible, but we don't always see that. But I'll tell you what that is. That's more than just, uh, wow, look at the magic that Jesus can perform. Look at this guy. He can walk on water. No, that is Jesus showing the disciples his place in the universe. That the home is under me. And that's why when he says to the to home, shut up, be still. And there's just this. That's Jesus showing the disciples, this is my place in the universe. That the home submits to me. And you got to love that part. Hey, Peter, come on, man. Let's go. Peter gets out of the boat. And the Bible doesn't say he sinks. It says he starts walking. He's walking on the Tehom. Why? Because in Psalm 8, when David says, Who am I? What am I in this world? God says, I've put everything under your feet, even the deep, the abyss, the Tehom. It's under us. We are called to rule and subdue the Tehom. And the only reason Peter sinks, it's not because he's not supposed to walk on to home. He takes his eyes off Christ. And we live there. And then we get scared. But there's not one reason why anyone should be scared today. Fix your eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Number seven. Be quick to acknowledge there's only one thing you need. One thing. It's God. God, I, I need you. When you feel like God's a thousand miles away or your life is in the pit or you're struggling with despair, God I need you. In fact, I find it interesting what David prays for in verse 1 of, of, of chapter 43. And I think this is what all of us would pray for in, in his circumstances. First he says, God vindicate me. And then it's God rescue me. It's, it's, it's God plead my cause. It's God fix my life. It's God get me out of this mess. It's God, help me. I can't tell you how many times I've prayed that prayer and continue to pray that prayer. But see, then David, though, leaves praying for those things and he prays for greater things. Look at what he prays in verse 3. Send me your light and your faithful care and let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy 
mountain to the place where you are. The place where you dwell. And see, in verse 3 now, he's not saying, God, lift my life out of the pit and come and rescue me. But it's, God, I want to get to you. I'm desperate for you. And I love how he prays this because he says, God, my world is so dark right now. I don't even know how to get there. So for me to get there, you're going to have to send your light. So that I can see you, so that I can taste you, so that I can know you. And I'm going to tell you something. Because what David is fighting for as his world is dark, and you see this in verse 4, is he's fighting for joy. And you're fighting for joy, and I'm fighting for joy. And the fight for joy is the fight to see. It's the fight to see God. It's the fight to see ourselves. It's the fight to see our circumstances and our reality as God sees them. And that's why the Bible says, it says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from what? From seeing. And in Ephesians 1 verse 18, Paul says, this is my prayer for you, church in Ephesus. May the eyes of your heart be open that you may see the hope to which you've been called. And see, what David knows is this, and this is an important point, That ultimate joy is not found in the stuff of verse 1, but ultimate joy is found in the stuff of verse 3. See, we think we're going to get joy when our life is fixed and when we're rescued and God makes our circumstances all good. But circumstances themselves become pretty irrelevant because our hearts have been made for God. And when we have God, Our circumstances matter not. Are you praying that prayer? Or are you just praying that God would just fix all your circumstances, get you the job, heal your marriage, get your life out of the pit? Or are you praying the higher prayer As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul longs for you. My body thirsts for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. What are you praying for? Because Mother Teresa said it so well, when, when Jesus is all you have, you realize Jesus is all you need. Last one, number eight. I must get to the altar. I mean, David is just like, okay, he's going to culminate this thing by, then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my joy. There it is. When I get to God, I'm going to get my joy and my delight. But I need to get to the altar. Why the altar? Why is David so intent on getting to the altar? Well, what is the altar? See, we're so removed from this, and what I'm going to talk about now is just, it's it's almost cringe factor to the modern mind. But the altar, 
was the place in the temple where David would show up with an unblemished lamb in his arms. And he would go before the altar and either the priest or David would take out a knight, slit its throat. The blood would pour, the sound and the smell of death. And see, what David realized is this, that the only place where he could be made clean, where he could be made whole, where his life and his soul and his self could all be put together again, was at the altar. Where this lamb would stand in his place and take upon himself all that David deserved. And by that lamb's throat being slit, he'd be healed. And see, what I love about David here is, and it doesn't always have to be this way, but I think every one of us, when we're in a place of despair, when, when we're in that place where our tears, we're crying them both day and night, when it feels like God is so far from us, we got to ask some hard things about us. Maybe I'm in this place because of me and my sin. See, now for David, this would be very easy because he could look at his reality and he could say, you know what, I wasn't the father I should have been. Absalom did not just wake up one day and want to kill me. And I'm sure as David has lost it all, as he's far away from home, it's just realizing how he's brought a lot of this upon himself. That's courage. That is biblical courage to not blame or project or just point the finger at God. Lord, get me to your altar. Do you know the altar? Have you experienced the altar? See, the altar for us is that place where God became the sacrificial lamb. Where God's throat was slit and his blood was poured out. Where he experienced that, that dying thirst. That abandonment from God. God, you're a million miles away from me right now. My God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? And, and I thirst. He was abandoned so that you and I would never be abandoned. He was given hell so that you and I could be given heaven. He was made thirsty on the altar so that you and I could drink the living water that satisfies. He was made sin on that altar so that you and I could be made righteous. He left the bosom of the Father, the lap of the Father, so that you and I could rest our lap there, our head there. And here's what I know about me today. I know my heart. And I know that without this altar, I would be the worst of the worst. I'd be chronically broken, chronically lost, chronically confused, chronically depressed, chronically without hope. But there's the altar. And by his wounds, by his wounds, I'm healed. And so can you. Get there. Let's pray.
Yeah, God, if we were sleeping, wake us up from our spiritual slumber and open the eyes of our hearts so that we could see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, which is in the face of Christ. And for those today, Lord, that feel far from you, maybe depressed, despairing, we just pray, God, that they would get to you. Because you are already there with them. But would they get to you? Would they get to your altar and pour out their heart? In Jesus' name.